Thank you for singing Happy Birthday. I couldn't think of anything better than to spend the entire morning with all of you for my birthday. So thanks for coming and uh, appreciate it very much. Um, I really mean that. Um, I, uh, I was in London this week for a couple of meetings, uh, two long days, uh, part of a new wine conversation that this network of churches we're part of. And the joy was that in, on the Wednesday night, we all went out for a pub meal somewhere in London, and uh, it was a little bit raucous. A uh, great load of friends. And as the food came out to our table, one of my friends said to me, or to the table, surely we'd all agree that you can only have chips with mayonnaise. It was like this, this confident declaration of what he believed to be a universal given. Now, I happen to share that conviction, but it triggered probably the most robust debate we've had all day. <laughs> And given that we're talking about a million pound deficit for this whole network and all of this sort of stuff, it got quite heated. There were a good number of people making the case for the kind of humble ketchup. Yeah? And then he was kind of coping with that until someone threw in the curveball of curry sauce because he'd never had chips with curry sauce before. And so he's like, how can I be sure that my strong conviction of chips and mayonnaise is right? So I thought, just to settle it once and for all, we'd do a quick show of hands before we go any further. So hands up for chips with mayo. Okay, hands up for chips with ketchup. Ooh, hands up for chips with curry sauce. Ooh, look at you, brummies. Uh, and hands up for any of the above, frankly. It's just all about the chips, actually. Okay, um, oh yeah, I've got no idea what that show of hands said. I think it's fairly split. It doesn't really matter. It's a very tenuous segue to making the point as we begin our vision series for the next few weeks, thinking about who we are, what we're called to be, why we're called to do the things we do as a church, uh, to say that my overarching conviction, the thing that motivates me to do what I do, the reason why I'm the vicar of a church and why we're having the conversation that we've been having here for as long as I've been around, is simply that it's in and through Jesus Christ that God is redeeming all of history that he's remaking all creation in his image, and that he will finish that. That actually we can look to the day when it's all done and all is well, and an end to sickness and death and suffering in the new heaven and in the new earth. That is my ultimate conviction, that God began that deep, beautiful work in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's extending it into all of history through the church by his spirit. And everything else sits under that one big framing of human history. So that's my kind of core conviction, which you hopefully will detect I hold more strongly than chips and mayo. And we often talk about the Greek word, don't we, for kainos, this Greek word kainos, which is one of two words we get in the New Testament for new. There's the word neos, which is new as in I have bought a new car. And then there's this word, kainos, which is beautiful, which actually speaks not of new things, but of God making all things new, you and me included. This, uh, the New Testament fundamentally centers around two truths. As I said earlier, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, sin and evil have been conquered. There is now no sting in death, that death is not the end, that there is life after death. And it turns out there's life after life after death because there's a new heaven as well as the current one. And that through his spirit, through the church, God is doing this remarkable, beautiful work. And that you and I, who bear the image of Jesus, restored to us as we come to faith and give our lives back to God, 
in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, are entrusted with this beautiful work of redemption. And so the vision of the church, simply put, and this is the language we use here, is to join with God in that renewing work, that renewal of all things. That's the vision we have here, to join with God in what he is doing, will do, and has promised to finish. And we do that here by practicing the way of Jesus in community. Practicing the way of Jesus, learning to live as he lived in and for the world, and doing that together because we can't do it on our own. And we're going to unpack those things in more detail in terms of some of the how uh, over the next few weeks again and afresh. But what we want to do today is frame this moment we're in because I think we're in a particular moment in human history. And actually, let's not just assume it's more of the same, but let's really hear the Lord speaking to us in these days. The truth is that uh, as much as we believe that God is deeply at work renewing all things, you know, restoring order where there's chaos, it doesn't feel like that at the moment, does it? Did anyone watch the news at all this week? I mean, like, my brother-in-law's an economist, and he was trying to explain to me yesterday what on earth is going on, and even he was struggling. So we're in real trouble, um, perhaps. And I don't mean that as a political statement, because it's far more complicated than partisan politics. I've been saying, haven't I, for some time, that we are in a time culturally of massive transition. We're coming to the end of one era, finding our way into a new one, a transition period that could take a long time, and it's really disorientating. So you may remember when we were navigating the depths of the pandemic, we talked about this phrase, this idea of VUCA. Some of you may remember this, uh, this sort of an acronym that um, people used initially in um, in the wake of natural disasters, but actually became a kind of helpful lens for making sense of how our world suddenly was turned upside down, we found ourselves living in a VUCA world, which is marked by four things, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And I found myself over the last few months wondering whether this season that we're in, this season of transition, which is a VUCA season, right, is it... A, a necessary season we navigate for not too long until we get to the so-called new normal. Or maybe this is the new normal. Certainly for an extended period of time. Because actually, if you read human history, if you look at kind of the transitions that go on from one significant era in human history to another, they take quite a long time. Like decades, if not over a century. What if we're in a moment in human history where we actually have to learn to become quite adaptive and resilient because the VUCA state, the VUCA world is here for a while? Uh, Welcome to church and discuss that freely. I'd encourage you in your life groups this week because it's a big question. I don't know the answer, but I wonder. Because if that is the case, then some of what we're about to say becomes more important than ever. And for however long we are in this season um, the way in which we go about following Jesus together actually needs to be different to perhaps the way it was pre-pandemic. I'm personally quite excited by that because I'm all up for an adventure and I think there's more to come. But actually, I recognize it's disorientating and takes a while to get our heads around. Either way, this is a moment, I would argue, in human history where the church needs to be seeking God and asking the question, as ever, what is the Spirit saying? The letters 
to the early church, the beginning of the book of Revelation. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. That's Jesus. Listen to my Spirit, the one I said would come to guide you into all truth, the one who would be with you, the one who's doing the work in you. What is the Spirit saying to the church? So let me introduce you to a second Greek word, and that word is the sister of kainos, and it's the word kairos. Kairos, which literally translates best as the appointed time in the purpose of God. I'll explain that in a moment. It's used 86 times in the New Testament to refer to this sense of a moment within chronos time, which is the other Greek word for time, chronos from which we get chronology, the clock, we can measure time. You can't stop it, you can't slow it down, you can't speed it up, it is just what it is. But within chronos time, there are these moments of kairos time, these particular moments, these seasons, these eras, these perhaps fleeting split-second moments or month-long or year-long moments where God, by his Spirit, does something specific and particular and important and profound. And it's actually the word that's used more often than not for the word time in the New Testament. By contrast, a chronos is only used 54 times, so nearly 50% again. And it's an important concept because it helps us make sense of what on earth we're going through. I would argue that we are in a particular kairos moment right now. Brought about by all those things that we've talked about over the last few weeks, the, the big seismic changes going on all around us. And it's an opportunity for God to do something particular unto that great purpose of the renewal of all things. And actually, the Spirit of God, I think, is saying to the church and therefore to us, do you see it? Can you, can you perceive it? Because God never wastes a crisis, and we are in one. By any measure, we're in a socioeconomic cultural crisis, and God wants to do something profound in it. And how does he do it? Through the church. So this has to shape our vision, it has to shape our imagination, our practice, our finances, our prayer life, everything. Are you with me so far? Some of you are just thinking, chips and mayo for lunch, come on. <laughs> I know. Lots of the prophetic voices in this church and in the church around us have been saying for some time now that God is wanting us to see that he's doing a new thing. And that verse that we had read from Isaiah has come up over and over and over again. And as ever with prophecy, which we believe is part of how the Spirit ministers to the church in the New Testament era that we're in, we have to weigh it prayerfully. We discern it in community. It has to align with Scripture. It has to resonate. But over time, that sense has been growing among lots of people. Everyone who's gathered regularly for hungry prayer gatherings here, there's this growing sense, yeah, God is doing a new thing. And I was having this conversation with somebody last week, and they said, Rich, you were saying three years ago that God wants to prepare us for a new thing that is going to come. And I said, oh, yeah, I was. Great. And here we are. We're, I think we're on the cusp of it, as I've said recently. And so it's my conviction, way more than chips and mayo, that actually this cultural moment is a kairos moment for us. This is our moment, church. God has been wanting to do a deep work of preparation in us so that he can do a deep work of restoration through us in and for this world that is so broken and in such crisis and turmoil. 
and where people are looking to all the wrong places for answers to all the wrong questions. Isaiah 43. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. This wilderness wasteland world that we find ourselves in. God is saying, I'm doing a new thing. Do you perceive it? Do you see it? Isaiah here is, of course, speaking about a particular Kairos moment that happened a while ago within Kronos time, human history. God did a particular thing at a particular time in and through and for the people of God at that time, the Israelites. He's actually referencing specifically the deliverance of the people of God out of exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem where they were being sent back, having had essentially some kind of judgment for their rebellious sin and disobedience, sent back to go, and okay, now finally go and rebuild the kingdom of God here in Jerusalem. That's essentially the context of this particular passage. But actually, as we've looked at this over the last wee while, I've hopefully shown you that this idea of exile weaves its way all the way through the scriptures. And so as well as being a specific thing that happens at certain points, exile to Egypt, exile to Babylon, it's actually a motif for understanding the human experience. That the true exile is being taken away from the things of God because of sin and the consequences of that being death. And the true deliverance is what Jesus gives us through his life, death, and resurrection. When we come to him in humility, repent of our sin, and ask for redemption and forgiveness, that he delivers us from, ultimately, sin and death itself into the new creation life that is here in part and is coming in full. So when we hear exile stories in the scriptures, when we have exile texts, yes, they're specific to moments in human history, but they are also universal. They speak to all generations, past, present, and future. And so we are all in some form of exile. Uh, individually, spiritually, as I say, but actually collectively as a culture. What's the, the ruling empire that's in opposition to the kingdom of God? One writer calls it digital Babylon. That actually we have this kind of empire of consumerism and hedonism and secularism that we all need deliverance from. You cannot be fully in the kingdom of God and fully in this world. You can't do a bit of both. You've got to pick. That's how it works with Jesus. So the invitation, I think, in this moment is to hear that word from Isaiah 43 as a fresh invitation, a new Kairos moment in our generation, in our moment in Kronos time, where God wants to do exactly the same thing. Make a way. Call us out of one world back into the other more fully, so that through us he can establish his rule and reign more fully here on the earth. That excites me. I see it. I perceive it in part. We discern it more fully in community. But it feels like it's a moment in which we have to take that really seriously. Think it's now, not tomorrow. I think it's today, not tomorrow. I think it's urgent now. I don't think there's any more prep ready. I think God is saying, go in my name and in my power. I wonder what you think. I wonder what's going on in your hearts right now. Do you see it? Do you perceive it? Am I putting language perhaps to a deep felt instinct that you didn't have language for? Are you sensing the, kind of the need for God to do a new thing? 
Have you got a hunger in you to see it happen? Are you stirred up? Hopefully you are. Let me say that if, if actually you're thinking, well, I'm not sure I am really rich, two things. The great spiritual writers would say to see and perceive, you have to do two things. You have to slow down. You have to slow down. And the other thing you have to do is you have to pray. You have to just gather with the people of God and pray. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. It's interesting to me that Jesus encourages his disciples, uh, those that are following him quite early on in the, in the Jesus uh, era, to see and to perceive what he was doing, what God was doing through Jesus, the, the kairos that they are in. So notice Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that, notice this, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. There's that language again, seeing and perceiving. And what he's doing here is actually quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says to the religious Rulers of the day, particularly that oversaw the people of God, the Israelites, you're, not, you're forever seeing but not perceiving. You're missing it. You can't see it. You're so blinded by the way you see the world that you cannot see or perceive the new thing that God is wanting to do. And Jesus is saying, I speak in parables partly because what happens is as I speak in parables, open hearts and open minds start to see because it's revelation. And as they see it, they kind of lean into it. It's awakened something in them. In a way, it's his way of discerning who's really up for this and who's looking just for some kind of immediate comfort and sort of temporary hope. And what happens is, over time, as they start to see it and perceive it, which does not equal understand it, notice, because he spends his entire life explaining to the 12 what he's actually doing, but they saw it enough to go for it and I think the invitation for us is the same. To say, we see something, we perceive something, Lord, that you're doing, and we're in. We don't understand it. We have no idea what it's going to take. We have no idea how we're going to get there. But it's got to be better than where things are now. Would you like to see more people in this city come to faith? We weren't entirely sure. This room was a bit more keen. This is the Mayo side, just to note. Uh, would you like to see more people in this city come to faith? Yes. Would you like to see more churches planted? Yes. Would you like to see the, the poor cared for better? Would you like to see a justice rule? An end to injustice? Yes. Okay, would you like to come more alive in the things of God? Yes. Okay, that's what he's wanting to do all the time. But there are moments, kairos moments, seasons, where he ramps up the intensity. He says, come on, church. For you... Yes, but so that through you as well. And this is one of those moments. It starts with us, but it's not just for us. The same idea is found elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul writes this in the uh, passage that Fraser read, 2 Corinthians 6. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time, that word there is kairos, of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the kairos of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. He's quoting here, Paul, from the book of Isaiah. It's very easy today. It's all about Isaiah. Isaiah 49, where he's saying, guys, 
You know that thing that God promised in and through the prophet Isaiah? It's now. That era has been ushered in through Jesus. Now is that, it is that kairos. Now is that season of God's favor. And so to our vision. I wonder whether you share my conviction that this is our moment. I hope you do. Because I think it's going to require a lot from us. And what I don't want to do is just kind of drag us all into it. What I want to do is fuel it, stoke it, name it, frame it, help us celebrate steps into it. Because it's going to require real courage and boldness. It's going to require more of us in every, sim- every metric. If we're to seriously see something happen in this moment, we have got to more fully and radically embrace the way of Jesus ourselves first. And so the vision, if you like, is the same. But the vision in this sort of moment, 2022 version, is let's really go for it. Let's turn up the dial. And it's both a quantity. I'd love us to see more happen, more people coming to faith, more things planted, more projects for the poor, more, 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 but also a better quality of it, an intensity to it, a fervor, a faith, an excitement, more fire undergirding it through prayer. Because otherwise it's just flipping hard work. And actually we don't need as much money and people as we think. What we need is to be more on fire for Jesus. So that's what I'm calling us to, what I'm giving myself to afresh. I'm more excited about what God wants to do in and through this church than I've ever been. I love this place. I love you. I love this city. But I'm not satisfied. And I don't just want to see some incremental gains over the next couple of years. I want to see a massive shift. I want to get to exponential impact which is what you see in the book of Acts and what you see in church history. That is always a move of the Spirit in a group of hungry, holy people. Every move of the Spirit, you've heard me say this so many times, is burst in and sustained by prayer. Prayer from holy, hungry, resilient disciples. We spent the last three weeks talking about resilient faith in times of uncertainty. Have you noticed now why? To like prime us for today's message because it's resilient disciples that God needs. People who practice a resilient faith, which is two things, remember? Deep faith and... I can't quite remember, Rich. Unshakable hope. Deep faith, unshakable hope. This deep conviction that God loves us and is with us and is for us and he's going to raise all things from the dead and make all things new. And so between now and then, we crack on in confidence that we'll see the dial turn. We'll see the data change. We'll see something shift. John Tyson, who's a church planter in New York, writes this about people of resilient faith. His language is creative minority, which we'll come to in a moment. But he says this, a creative minority people of resilient faith, is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons 
who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Let's just pull that apart in a moment because it's classic Christian theology. Dense, creative. It's, it's a bunch of people who are creative because we're made in the image of the creator. We're, we're going to find new ways. We're going to innovate. We're going to be entrepreneurial because we've got to do things differently if we want to see more happen. I love what we do here, but this is not going to save the city. We need to diversify and you know, multiply. But it's a minority. We are the minority, but a creative minority of resilient disciples, truly dependent on the leading and the power of the Spirit. That is how God has always changed communities and cultures and societies. That's always how it's been done. He doesn't need everybody. He just needs enough of us. This web of stubbornly loyal relationships. Do you have stubbornly loyal relationships, like annoyingly loving friends who just keep on loving you even when you're a pain in the neck? I do. And I'm so thankful for you. This community of people so committed to Jesus and one another that we, that we commit and we network and we live together in such a way that actually we practice the way of Jesus and through us the, the cities change. So this is more than just turning up to church every other week, remembering life group every so often, reading your Bible when you've got time. This is like, I'm in. Like, it's all in. All the eggs, one basket. That's the kind of Christianity Jesus wants. That's the kind of Christianity he needs. And studies of renewal, studies of church history, studies of big moves of the Spirit have all concluded the same thing. It's really interesting. Seven distinctives of resilient disciples. Seven things that creative minorities do. Seven things that churches used powerfully by God commit to. And you'll notice these are all seven things that we do here at All Saints. They're not new things. Okay, seven things, we'll come to them in a moment, that we do as a means of pursuing Jesus and partnering with him. We do them individually and we do them collectively. Seven things that we have to intentionally commit to. And remember I said, it's quantity and intensity. And they're all done in the power of the Spirit. And in a sense, these are all already in our vision stuff, our strategy stuff. We're just going to revisit each and every one of them in turn. How are we going to do this in such a way that we go for the more that I talked about last week? You ready? Are you ready? Yes. Great. Chips and mayo. Number one, prayer. Fundamentally, it's birthed in and sustained by prayer. If you want to be hungry and holy, if you want to be someone who steps into this Kairos moment unabandoned, Sorry, abandoned, un unhindered, and, you, and, and yet there's a check or there's a resistance or there's something, and I've got that because it's also quite terrifying as well as really exciting. The best thing we can do is gather to pray and get someone to pray for you. We're going to do that in a moment. But I want to just invite you, a week on Wednesday is our next hungry in here, prayer and worship evening. That is Wednesday the, the 12th of October. And we're going to gather to pray for this. We're going to say, God, here we are. We're going to pray. Because we can do our bit, but ultimately it's so that you can do your bit through us. All of this is a, a work of the Spirit. So prayer is number one, really important. A commitment to prayer. Not just when we gather together, but on your own, all the time, everywhere. We looked at that a little bit last week. Number two, formation. 
a commitment to spiritual formation. And, and that's our language for what it really means to follow Jesus. So committed to becoming like Jesus, truly, newly human, that you will deal with your crap, that you will be honest and accountable somewhere, that you'll find your way into those stubbornly loyal relationships where actually you actually let God do that deep work of healing in and through you. Can't do it on your own. It's too hard. Number three, a commitment to intentional community beyond this place. Smaller gatherings of that. And we have all sorts of ways in which we do that. And Fraser's going to look at that later on in the vision series. Generosity. Radical generosity. Time, money, possessions, your home, your love, your talents, your skills, your wisdom. Give it away. Give it away. It's all God's. Just give as much as you possibly can. Some of us are really struggling financially right now. Some of you actually aren't noticing it, really. That's great, because there's a distribution mechanism built into the church. It's called radical generosity. One of the things we're going to talk about is something we're launching in a couple of weeks, a new fund within the finances, where those of you who've got more than you need can put some money in to a fund so that we can make sure that people who don't have enough can access it both from within the church and from the community. Generosity. And I have to say, uh, someone was here recently, just before the summer, uh, a lady called Jackie, who was a curate in a church in Bristol, has become the vicar of it, had a bit of a gap uh, to kind of just transition. And she said one of the things that struck her about her week with us was how generous people were. Time, money, space, everything. So let's keep leaning into that. But these are all intentionality, evangelism. That is a weakness of ours, I would say, our evangelism. We have that instinct for it, but we're not really doing it. A whole conversation for another time. And then the other two things that come up over and over again on these lists is a commitment to seeking justice, which is not the same as caring for the poor. Caring for the poor is what we do with, through things like the food bank that uh, Graham and his team run magnificently, making sure people get cared for in their point of need. Justice is tackling the underlying reasons why there are these problems in the first place. The tackling the injustice of, of food poverty, tackling the injustice of the climate crisis and the impact that has not only on us, but primarily the people in the majority world. Tackling the injustices of, of the racial situation, for example. All of these things are kingdom priorities. And actually, if we're serious about stepping into this Kairos moment and seeing God do what he wants to do, streams of living water in the wasteland, then we've got to go for all of those far more, far better, far more intentionally. Are you with me? Is this making any sense? Who is excited? Yeah, good. And the rest of you are just thinking, I know. One final text, and then we're going to pray. And notice Paul uses the word kairos in this passage twice as well. But also note the promise. Here's Galatians 6. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper kairos, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have kairos, opportunity, it's the same word in Greek, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers, the church. We are in this moment where we have opportunity, kairos, to step in, to step up, to step out. But notice the encouragement, let us not become weary. In 
I am so aware that we feel weary, many of us, after the last two and a half years. I get that. I do. The church, we feel weary at moments in the church. We've found that. We've talked to you. But here's the thing. Paul says to this church, and I think we'd say to our church, let's not become weary in doing good. Side note, that means we need to find ways of resting and letting God do a restorative work in us spiritually so that we're ready. We've been leaning into that for the last year, but we're not quite there yet. So there's a place for resting still, but it's unto this moment. And so actually, if you're still struggling, I want to encourage you to come and talk to us so we can help you think through how might you get to the place where in your bit of the equation, you're ready to go. Because actually, this is the time. Not tomorrow. You know that phrase, saving it for a rainy day? It's a rainy day. This city needs us today, not tomorrow. And yes, we're weary, some of us more than others. It's hard navigating a VUCA world. But resilient faith allows us to get to that place where we can lean in in confidence. And the promise, we will reap a harvest. That is biblical shorthand for we will see the fruit of the kingdom of God. We will see people coming to faith. We will see lives transformed. We will see people healed. We'll see communities changed. We'll see churches planted. When we do our bit, God's looking for the people who say, and we're in. We do, we, we, he does the heavy lifting, but here we are. So, do you see? Do you perceive? Is it stirring in you? Let's ask the Spirit, shall we, to come and bless this. and Minister to us. Pour out his Spirit upon us. I said last week, we are pushing in afresh they're making space for the Spirit here when we gather. It's what we believe in. So if you're up for this, if you're able, would you stand? And God can do it even if you're sitting, but if you're able, do stand. It's a change of posture. And we simply invite the Holy Spirit to minister to us. We're not going to rush into 